Hi, and welcome to Edelman Editions. In this episode, we're continuing our Powered by Gwen series, Edelman's Global Women's Equality Network. Lizzie Rabone, Associate Director of Strategy and Analytics in Edelman DXI, sits down with Deborah Francis-White, comedian, author, screenwriter, and host of the hit podcast, The Guilty Feminist, to discuss creating an inclusive environment in the workplace, feminism, moving past guilt, and building tribal trust. Over to you, Lizzie. I am Lizzie. I am uh, one of the Gwen UK co-leads uh, here at Edelman, and I am a feminist, but even though I have been leading my team here for over a year, I sometimes forget that I'm in charge and that it's down to me to set the culture I want to work in. So that's why I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today, Deborah, about inclusivity in the workplace, guilt, feminism, and all of those good things. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So as the guilty feminist, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is guilt. Guilt can be such a paralyzing emotion. And, you know, when we feel it, it often stops us from actually doing the things that deep down we feel like we know we need to do. So I wanted to ask you about how we can move past guilt or even just not let it hold us back. Well, the whole point of the guilty feminist is really to exfoliate guilt, lest it become shame, which we then carry on the body like luggage. So when we do the I'm a feminist butts at the top, so I'm a feminist, but one time I went on a women's rights march, popped into a department store to use the loo, got distracted trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. Now, the first time I admitted that, I thought, oh, they're going to kick me out of the feminist club. But in fact, many women laughed and went, I too have popped into a pub in the middle of a march thinking I'd go back out. And I thought it's very crowded and my feet hurt. Um, so actually accepting you turned up, you were counted, you did the best you could. And next time you're going to stay longer and that we all do this kind of stuff sometimes. What does it matter if you watch the Say Yes to the Dress and Love Island instead of the four-hour documentary about the suffragettes? You'll watch it next time or you won't. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you shouldn't speak out and speak up. And I think that was my problem is, is that I felt that I and other women were going, am I really entitled to ask for more when I'm not, my values and my actions don't always meet? So I think one of two things, exfoliate it, it's funny, it doesn't matter, these things are trivial, laugh about it, realise everyone does it when everyone laughs, or go, actually, I do need to work on this. I'm not even thinking about, you know, say, for example, as a feminist, if you're only including women like you and you're not thinking about women who are more marginalised than you, who, if you're a white person, that might be someone who's black or brown. If that, if you're somebody who is not disabled, that could be somebody with a disability. Um if you're straight, it could be someone who's queer or gender non-conforming. So I think if we're not thinking about, if we're only making the world better for people like us and we are in a privileged category, then I would say, yeah, we do. We can't just laugh that off. But if we talk about it and go, oh, that's something I've noticed and heard about, but I don't think I'm very good at doing it. Put it on the table. Let's build muscle. Let's let's change stuff. But sitting there with a the secret guilt and then turning that into shame is just luggage to be carried and then it slows you down. And women are told you've got to be feeling guilty all the time. If you're at work, you should be at home with your kids. If you're with your kids, why are you not being a better executive? If you're doing all of those things, you're not a good enough daughter or friend or something else. So feminism shouldn't be another thing to feel guilty about. Um, it should be something that makes all of those other things easier and more accessible to us. So either laugh it off or, or let's let's get to work. Yeah, I love that. I've actually been looking into the um, science of pain a lot recently and it's quite a similar mechanism in that pain is your body's way of telling you this bit is broken you need to pay attention and maybe change some things so that it can heal and I guess guilt is very similar it's like don't put weight on that leg just now but let's get a crutch until it's ready to go again that's right yes <laughs> with that in mind um, you've been doing this you know for many years on the podcast since 2015 
How has that experience of publicly admitting all of your guilty secrets so openly changed you, helped you in any way? I think overall, a podcast has done me the world of good. You know, I've had to do a lot of challenges. I've had to, people see me as a feminist because I'm well known now for the guilty feminist. Um, I've met and been educated by so many incredible women, activists, comedians, um, uh, brilliant people who are experts in their field. So it's been a great privilege. And uh, I feel like I'm a much stronger feminist. I can lift a lot more weight now. And one of those things has been practicing just going, ah, this doesn't matter. It's trivial. And not to not to be walking around with all of this shame that's just weighing us down all the time. Yeah, and when you're so focused on the trivial, it's so easy to miss the big major thing, uh, which is, you know, the worst outcome. Since you've been, you know, doing the podcast and been such a public feminist, how do you feel that the mainstream attitude to feminism has changed and the way that you all then accepted as a feminist in society has perhaps changed? I think it's changed dramatically because I started the podcast end of 2015. So, you know, that was a time when I could feel it bubbling up and friends of mine, when we'd have lunch, instead of talking about our own petty concerns with our love lives or careers, we were talking about women's place in society and how things were shifting. And I remember in that year, you know, all Bill Cosby's accusers got on the front cover of a magazine and said, this is how many there are. There's like 27 of us or something like that. You know, um, I say us, I wasn't one of them, but that's what they were saying. There's 27 of us or whatever it was. Like, are we all lying? We don't even know each other. Have we all made up a, a version of the same story? Come on. And yet we're still not believed. And that's the forerunner to me too. That's you can feel it in the zeitgeist, and I knew I wanted to be part of it. Hillary Clinton was just about to be in the White House; that was a sure thing. Uh, things were changing, things were shifting, um, and I wanted to be part of that. And you know what's happened for women since then with Me Too and Times Up, and in a weird way, Donald Trump getting in has pushed us out into the streets and made us demand more. And so, I genuinely do feel like it's the most exciting time for women since I've been alive. Or certainly since I've been, you know, old enough to be politically active, for sure. Yeah, I mean, moving towards better is, is always progress. What I wanted to talk to you about as well is trust. Now, Edelman, as uh, many people listening to the podcast may know, is all about trust. We release our trust barometer every year. Um, and when I was reading your book, The Guilty Feminist, I noticed that you were using trust in some really, I think, useful ways that really kind of laid bare problems that we've been discussing for a long time and actually pointed the way to a solution. And the first place where this really stood out to me is when you were talking about confidence. So as a woman, uh, I'm about 31. Well, I am 31, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I, in my lifetime, I feel like we've lived through this whole change where uh, initially we felt like, oh, everything's fine. Feminism has already sorted everything. So women, we just need to be confident and take that place at the table, which is ready for us and everything will be fine. And it didn't quite work out that way. And initially we thought, oh, we need to work on our confidence that, that, you know, it's an us problem. We need to work on ourselves, but that increasingly felt like it wasn't the solution and actually wasn't always a helpful response in your book you lay out that confidence actually comes from different types of trust. One of them is that personal trust in yourself, but the other is tribal trust. And I'd love it if you'd be able to explain that breakdown a little bit more. Sure. So the confidere is the root of the word confidence. It's a Latin word uh, meaning to trust. And so a confidence trickster is someone who betrays your trust. So the first part is, do, are you good at doing things like this? Have And, and I would suggest 
You know that from your experience. Confidence to me should be a product of your experience. Sometimes people are confident based on nothing. And then I would, then they sort of have a go at running the United States of America. And it turns out everyone storms the Capitol building. Not good at it. Shouldn't have trusted themselves, but they were full of, yeah, yeah, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm going to make America great again. So the the assumption that women should be as confident as men all of the time, I think is, hmm, that's a very masculine way of looking at the world. And if the world were running at uh, top speed uh, with precision timing and uh, the environment was on point and so was the financial situation, I'd go, yeah, we should be doing stuff more like men. But I look around at the world and I ask myself, have they succeeded? And the answer has got to be not really. So uh, firstly, I would say, do you trust yourself to do things like this? Like if someone said, do you want to walk across a tightrope? I'd be like, no, I don't trust myself to do that. I'm not confident doing that, nor should I be. I'd have to get lessons. I'd have to have a, a net underneath. That would be the wise thing to do. I shouldn't just go at that with confidence. But if you're talking about your job, probably you've got a lot of experience telling you, yeah, 20, 19 times out of 20 when I do things like this, they go really well. Here's all my evidence. Therefore, you should be confident. You should trust yourself. It's like, you know, the first time you made a cup of tea, you probably were quite nervous. Your first time you're allowed to make a cup of tea, you're thinking, oh my God, this boiling water, I've got control of boiling water. And you probably spilled a bit of it on the counter. Maybe you burnt yourself a bit, tried to get the tea bag out too quickly, you put the milk in too late, all of that. But today you probably made a cup of tea without thinking about it because you're so experienced at making tea. You've done it so many times. You know, the first time you had to really focus on it. Now you're chatting away, you're sending a text, listening to a podcast. You don't even think about the tea. That's how good you are at tea. Your product of your experience gives you self-trust with tea making. Um, and so what I would suggest is that's the first thing. Are you good at things like this? Yes, probably, if it's your job. So yes, you should trust yourself. The second part is, can you convince other people you trust yourself because you might be brilliant at it. You might know you're brilliant at it, but you may have got used to telling the story. Hi, just had a thought. Don't know if it's worth mentioning. Just presenting all my facts as opinions here because I've been socially conditioned to do that. So people like me because I learned that in the sixth form to get bullies to leave me alone or girls or boys to like me. Um, so that's the second part. Can you tell the story? I trust myself. And the third part is, does the tribe trust you? Tribal confidence. Do people, do people like you, are people like you thought by our society to be good at things like this. So if you've ever been on a plane and had a female pilot, you'll notice there've been jokes going around the cabin about, I hope she can land it. And because people feel nervous when they get on planes, consciously or subconsciously, they go, Ooh, am I going to be, you know, am I going to be safe? I'm in a big piece of metal in the sky. And that we just not used to female pilots. So a lot of people will feel uncertain with a female pilot. A pilot knows, she knows she doesn't have tribal confidence. She knows those jokes are going around about her. Now, when we have over 50% female pilots, those jokes will no longer be a thing because there used to be feelings like that about female doctors and now more than half of doctors are women. So now you went, you go to the doctor, you wouldn't go, is she going to be any good with blood though? Can she use a needle? Because your experience tells the tribe, our experience tells the tribe women are good at being doctors. But the first doctor in this country who was a woman was Elizabeth Garrett Anderson and the hoop she had to jump through to become a doctor. And then no one would see her because men, women, nobody wanted to see a female doctor. So she had, she got lucky. There was an outbreak of cholera and people were so desperate for any doctor. They went to see her and went, oh, she's actually quite good. And then she opened a college to train other women to be doctors because she was a feminist. She wasn't someone who was just going to go, I'm special. I'm the only lady doctor. 
yes, that makes me better than the other women. She went, no, women should be doctors. We need more women doctors. Come on, women, learn how to be doctors. And now over 50% of the doctors in this country are women. So women have tribal confidence for medicine. No little girl would go in this country would go, oh, I'd love to be a doctor, but I only see male doctors in hospitals and on television. That's not happened. No, I watch Grey's Anatomy and Scrubs and whatever. There's lots of women doctors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go to the doctor and it's a woman. And so, But we still don't have tribal confidence around stand-up comedy or flying planes. And so that's shifting. Both of those are shifting. And if you don't have tribal confidence because people like you don't do things like this, you may need to signal more the story to get better at telling the story, I trust myself. If you're a female film director, you may have to go in, a man who's a film director go in looking at his shoes with holes in his coats and looking down and mumbling and people go, oh, he must be a genius. Give him an opera to direct. Um, well, a woman looking at her feet going, oh, I'm not sure what to do here will be seen as no good. Women cannot do that because there's not enough women directing films yet because we're not, we don't have tribal, tribal trust. So if you do, if you know you don't have tribal trust, You've got to be much better at telling the story. Sorry, that's not fair. It's a power structure. But given that's the one we've got, let's just leap over it. By getting better at telling the story. Getting better at telling the story, I definitely trust myself. And also project a lot of tribal trust onto women in, in, in industries that, that where they're, they're in the minority. So easy, particularly in the, the era of Zoom calls when there's so much airtime to fill, to forget the power that there is in silence in reflection, in taking the time to be a little bit more deliberate about what you're saying, but also how you're saying it. In terms of leadership and inclusion, I think that what you were alluding to with that sense of belonging is so important. And one thing that in Gwen we've been talking about recently is allyship. Initially, we were talking about male allyship, but also we want to expand that conversation to talk about you know every kind of allyship that's needed, whether it's white allyship or straight allyship or able-bodied allyship. And I think you had some really great points around, you know, allyship is actually going that step further beyond just including someone to making sure that they're, they belong and whether you could expand on, you know, how to really bring someone into the space and let them make it their own. I would say but a lot of people think inclusion ends with recruitment and they go, well, she's, she's, we've got a woman one. She's got a lanyard and an email account. Well, what does she want? And they forget if she's the only woman in that area of the business, she may not feel like she belongs. And I don't know if you've ever been to your partner's school reunion or you can imagine that. Uh, but are you included? Yes, your name's on the door. You sign, you're signed up. You've paid the cover charge. You've got a name badge, half a glass of warm white wine on entry. How are you not included? You are included. You belong? Of course not. A school reunion is about shared experience and memory. You don't have that. So you're there under sufferance. You're there to make your partner look successful so they can say, well, I'm doing all right in life. Someone agreed to come to this with me. It's the only reason you're there. They don't want to talk to you. They want to talk to their friends about that time that someone fell off the stage during Romeo and Juliet or someone scored a winning goal. So you are there to make them look interesting or successful in some way. Um, if your partner came home from work and said, I'm actually not up for this reunion, I've got a sore throat, there's no way in the world you would say, well, we've paid. God, let's go without you. Wouldn't matter if it was a fancy school and it was a £500 a plate charity dinner. I'm going to be so disappointed if I'm not there. You definitely don't want to be there. And it's because you don't belong. <laughs> Where's Libby? <laughs> yeah. You don't belong. And I'm going to go further and say the only people that turn up to any school reunion or college reunion or uni reunion are people who belonged 
when they were there. Plenty of people that were at that school, not at the reunion, do you know why? They were enrolled, they turned up, but they didn't feel like they belonged. They were isolated, they were bullied, they were quiet, they were you know, only there for one term or whatever. Might be invited to the reunion, not going. They didn't belong when they were there. So it's only the ones who belonged who turn up. And then so this is hyper belonging and sentimentality of remember when we all belonged here. Um, so the question I have for you is, in your organisation, are there some people who feel like they're at someone else's school reunion a lot of the time? And the answer will be yes, in different areas of that organization, in different areas of your business, in different, you know, at a networking event versus, you know, within their tightest colleagues or whatever. In some areas of our working life, we feel more like we're at someone else's school reunion, all of us. So the question is not how do you include that person by saying, oh, here's a drink, but saying how do, how do we allow people in our organization to become architects of the space, to reorganize the furniture, to knock down a wall, to make it a better space for them. We're so busy just going, you're included in our space. Thanks. It's not a great space for me. That's okay. You're included in it. I don't like the space. It's too bad. It's not created for or people by you, like you. So you're stuck with it. All you can do is include yourself. But I don't know if you saw the Brené Brown new Netflix special. Um, it's called Call to Courage. It's brilliant. And she says, you know, she does the, like the science of vulnerability and happiness. And she does lots of sociological studies and stuff. And one of her colleagues was doing some kind of st sociological study on belonging and discovered that the opposite of belonging is fitting in. And, I, and it's counterintuitive, isn't it? It sounds like the same thing. But think about places you belong. Think of your, yeah, think of your family's, you know, end of year celebration or family anniversary or whatever. You know, when you get together with your family, if you have a big family or a nuclear family or for you, that could be you, just you and your big sister or your gran or you, your best mates from college or whatever. Think about that. You are not trying to fit in. You are not trying to fit in. Where you're trying to fit in is, oh, I've got a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend and now I've got to fit in in their friendship circle. So I'm trying to be ingratiate myself. Trying to fit in implies you don't belong. So are we forcing people to fit in to a space they did not create or design without allowing them to become the architects of the space? How would they like it to be? And could it be better for you and other people if you let them have a say? And by saying, by the way, do you like it here? probably going to go, oh, yes, thanks. I'm really grateful for the job. <laughs> They're not going to tell you. So you're going to have to make them feel so safe or do it some in some way that's so anonymous. But it'd be nicer if they felt so safe that they could explain how they'd like things to be different or they might not have thought about it. They may never have been asked before. So you may just have to create an environment in which they ask that question to themselves of how what would be nicer for you. Um, but letting people recreate the space and recreate the, the 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 routine is a great thing. I think that's a great point as well that you know you can't just kind of ask once and accept the polite reply. Especially you know there's always power structures. So like I run a team. If I were to reach out to someone on my team that was new, I'm their boss. They're not going to be like right. I'm going to tell the boss exactly what I think of her on day one. You know like nobody is going to feel like they have that permission. Um, going back to trust, it's always such a two way street. But men do that all the time, Lizzie. They say we asked them. <laughs> they said it was fine. It's like, oh, well then. Sure. I bet it is then. Also, it's all you ask as well, right? Everything's fine, right? Okay, great. Moving on. 
<laughs> or asking someone if it's fine two seconds before it's about to happen, they probably don't feel like they have the ability to make a change at that point. So I think, yeah, what I'm hearing from you is it's so important to have that consistency and like you need to earn that trust so that you can actually hear the truth. <laughs> um, but uh, another thing I really like about that quote is that because it is so counterintuitive to start off with that, you know, fitting in is the opposite of belonging. I think it also speaks to that piece of emotional labor, which comes up so much around allyship and gender and race discussions that it's, you, we need to find a balance between, you know, listening from the people who know the most, but also not limiting people to one of their characteristics, just because it happens to be the hot topic of the time. Uh, I want to go back to a question that somebody was asking actually at Edelman around leadership styles and uh, this, this style of inclusive leadership, I think is so appealing. Do you feel like there are any problems or issues with having a very open kind of vulnerable leadership style where you're openly showing your weakness to, you know, uh, your managers? Is there a balance we need to strike between being the leader they have trust in and a fallible human being? Or can we just admit that everyone we have trust in is also a fallible human being on some level? It's quite a Western corporate idea that infallibility is makes you a good leader. Um, I the way I like to think about this is if you were to go to a juggling school, you can do you can get through juggling school in two ways. Uh, you may you may think success is never dropping a ball, in which case your audition for juggling school might be. I can juggle three balls very safely. And you may stay with that pattern for the full four years of juggling school um, and never drop a ball. And that may be success for you. But there might be someone else coming into that juggling school who goes, by the end of my days here, on my last day, I'm going to juggle 20 fiery chainsaws. Um, so to do that, they're going to have to drop a lot of balls. So my question is, what kind of leader are you? Are you a leader in who's juggling lots of exciting things in lots of exciting ways. What's our goal here? Is it to be bold and ever evolving? In which case, I'm an expert juggler. That's a ball I dropped, are totally compatible. We're going to drop a lot of balls here, guys. So we're going to have to get really good at going, you've dropped that one, I'm going to pick it up and put it back into your pattern. Because I see, as an expert juggler, you are definitely going to drop some balls. We're not going to be three ball safe jugglers here. We're not going to be doing that simple pattern that, you know, you see that most people learn when they're kids at some point or, you know, that, you know, and never, never drop anything. Main thing is don't distract me. We're, we're people with ambition. I'm an expert juggler. That's a dropped ball. So I don't know if anyone listens to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, but that podcast is all about what we learn from failure. When she asks you your three failures, I did one. I talk a lot about failure in that. It's just such a Western idea. As grown-ups, we've got to be good at things, and we already know what we're good at and we're bad at. We only have goes at things we're good at. And it's such a limiting way of life. At the beginning of lockdown, I didn't handle it very well. I thought, oh, God, I'm divorced from people and I'm such an extrovert. My whole life is people. So I thought to get out of bed, I don't have kids, so I thought no one's going to jump on me and get me out of bed. So I thought I'm going to learn to dance because I've never been very comfortable physically. I'm very comfortable mentally and verbally. I'm very dexterous and very confident in myself I trust myself but on stage if I ever get anxiety it's it's held in my body and I've never been that comfortable I'm very tall and you know I I've never been that comf athletic or anything like that so I'm going to learn to dance like sh like show tunes dancing jazz hands show tunes and so I had a class every single day a private class because frankly I'm too terrified in a I just thought oh, I'll be I'll get behind and I'll start to feel emotional in a class 
So I found a teacher who also didn't have much work on because, you know, they couldn't dance anymore in public. Um, and every morning at 9.15, we got on and we did an hour or two of dancing. And I just came back from the studio where I go now and I've danced for six days a week for a year and three months. And um, I've now got a routine that I'm putting together to a song from Six, the musical called Get Down that has a very funky kind of slightly hip hop commercial chorus. And it has a tap break in the middle because I can tap dance now. Um, and I was doing a bit with my teachers today. I've got two different dance teachers where we're doing something in canon, which means I go sort of boom, but a boom. And she goes boom, but a boom just after me. And we were having so much fun with kind of like facing each other and kind of like sending the the tap back and forth and sort of, you know, the way you see kind of tap back, it's almost like you're having a conversation and how much fun it is. And I just sort of, we recorded it as we video it just to sort of see back and go, oh, that could be better or, you know, that kind of thing. And I just thought, oh, I look like I'm having so much fun. and like, this is so easy. And like a year or three months ago, I was the kind of person who, if I went to a hen night and we all had to learn choreography, you know, that kind of hen night, or I was doing a, a comic relief sketch or something where we all had to do a funny dance. And it, even though it was simple, like a Macarena type thing, I would be checking the exits going, I'm not going to be able to remember it. Everyone's going to be better than me. And now I'm like, you know, doing a bit of tap in canon, you know, like, you know, and, and really enjoying it and really challenging myself. And the chorus we've nicked from TikTok is the original OG West End Broadway choreography. It's quite challenging for a you know quite junior dancer like myself. I've only been going a year and three months, but because I do it every day and I'm determined to crack it. And my one of my teachers, Melissa, who's taught me for most of the time, she says, "You are the most what did she say? You're the most determined student of mine." And I was like, "That's not much of a compliment." <laughs> she didn't say you're the most supple, talented, graceful, natural dancer. She said you're the most determined. You're most hardworking. Grown up, I've got. Because you really you're determined to get it, and and it, and I don't let it go until I have it. And that's a it's it's I've then I've recently got a keyboard because I thought oh well, I'll learn to play piano on an app because anything you do for five ten fifteen minutes a day you get good at. Grown ups, we're rubbish. We just go. I already know what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. I'm good at tennis, so I will sign up for the office tennis tournament. I'm bad at singing, so I will never do karaoke sober. And that's just a, it's such a limited way of thinking about the world where you could go, oh, well, I love singing. It's really fun. So I'm going to do it or I'm going to have six singing lessons. I'm going to have some tennis lessons now because um, someone who's very close to me has got into tennis and I want to be able to have rallies. I'm not terrible at tennis. So I thought, well, I've got to have some lessons. I've got to get better. And I think dancing's really shown me that, that now if I were at a hen night and somebody said, oh, well, we're all going to learn a dance, I'd be like, well, I'm going to be really good at this because I dance every day. And I'd be like, yes, tell me more. Let me get my lycra out. And it's that. It's just that. Like in two years' time, like at the moment, I'm playing very, very simple things on the keyboard on my app. But in two years' time, I'll be able to play, you know, probably, you know, some basic things quite quite with quite com with confidence, you know, and in five years time, I might take a piano exam. Who knows if I do it 10 minutes a day, every day, probably I wouldn't, I would be, it would be strange if I played piano every day for five years and I was still only as good as it as I am today. So, so the, so the thing I would say is don't not, when people often say to me, they want to try stand up comedy. And I say, don't not do like they, uh, I'll see them a year later at someone's friend's birthday party and they'll say the same thing. And I'll go last year, you said you wanted to try stand up comedy. And what put you off, if we're, if we're honest, is fear. 
So next year, you can either be someone with a year's gigs under your belt, a year's experience, or you can be still saying, I'd like to try it. They are your options. But don't not do your first gig because it won't be as good as your 20th. And don't not do your 20th because it won't be as good as your 100th and so on. The only way to be an experienced stand-up comedian is to get up and do stand-up comedy lots of times and just have lots of goes. I mean, that is that it's literally the only thing. And enjoy that your 10th go won't be as good as your 100th. Enjoy it. I was reading something recently and I thought it made a, a really great point, which I hadn't come to by myself, which is obviously there's a lot more media around today. And so a lot of the people that my generation look up to as like auteurs or, you know, great geniuses, they kind of came of age before there was so much visibility. So say Steven Spielberg is a very famous director. We don't have Steven Spielberg's like, you know, first student film. We don't know what that looked like, but for ourselves and also our friends, we see the whole working process, which I think ultimately leads us all to get better because, you know, you can learn so much more from that, but it's, it's an interesting sort of generational shift that I think we're used to being exposed to the final product. I imagine it's the same for you in stand-up comedy, particularly with the podcast that, you know, in the past, you could just have one routine, you could hone it for years, it could be perfect. And, you know, people wouldn't have heard it before. So you could tour it and tour it and tour it. Whereas now, once you've done it once on Live at the Apollo, you need new jokes. <laughs> That's correct. That is correct. Television has killed variety. That is true. <laughs> Thesis statement for the podcast, down with television. Um, but yeah, as a leader, as a leader, what if you said, I'm going to learn this or, you know, what if you had things in the environment? Like I've got a Peloton and when I first did it, I was always on the scoreboard. I was always in the absolute bottom, like three of a hundred people riding or whatever. And now I'm like 60 and I can get up to 50 if I ever take people. And I'm really motivated to do that because I'm like, yeah, you know, what if you had things in your environment, in your working environment, if we're coming back into offices, that was like a keyboard where you sat down and had your afternoon tea break or whatever, and people saw you practicing for five minutes a day, maybe with headphones in an office environment. And you said, right, I'm going to, you know, there's this app available to everyone. I've bought this cheap. My keyboard costs 200 quid or something, 300 quid. You know, if you had that keyboard in your environment and said, anyone who wants to use this app, I've signed everyone up, anyone who wants to, and sort of see if in a year's time, how many of us can get to here on the app where we're actually sort of playing something we want to play. It's this really good app that I've got sort of move or something like that where you play songs immediately and that you recognize and uh and like wouldn't it be great if you said a scoove it's called if you had things in your office environment where you said i've never played piano before so in the you know in two years time i'm going to show you whatever i can play even if that's still you know i've only done it once and that's still so whatever you know i'm going to play you something every six months because that shows that kind of fallibility and learning but it also is a great model of going if we all do this together we can all play stuff for each other and anyone who wants to participate and you might have a bunch of things because some that might not appeal to somebody but you might have a a peloton bike and other things there that you know where people can see their progress because i think that creates then a culture of not being able to do things and then having goes at them and being getting better at them yeah completely agree and i think that 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 culture that they, you then create of an expectation of continuous improvement by continuously admitting where you're not already doing well can also really play into what we we're talking about before about letting people become architects of this space and by admitting your failure in one area people feel more comfortable coming to you and hopefully not saying you're a failure but saying you could be doing this better you just haven't thought of it yet i wonder if we could 
segue slightly from leadership into mentorship, which I think is a very similar skill. But obviously, when we think about mentorship, well, you can have peer mentorship in a group. But I'm thinking here more about that kind of like one-on-one relationship that you have with somebody who is uh, almost designed to help you move past your own failures and how we can be good mentors, but also good mentees who, you know, bring our mentors our problems in a, a helpful way or a way that they can actually solve them and not, you know, sometimes I think I fall into the trap of using my mentor to them and I feel better, but I don't get better. <laughs> well, I would say two things. One is to be a good mentor, you're overriding other people's stories. So when I was talking before about confidence, What I was really saying is, if you tell the story, I'm not sure I can do this, don't trust me with money or responsibility. Most people go, okay, then I'm watching my own back. So I'm not going to trust you if you don't trust yourself. A mentor is someone who goes, I think you can. I think your horizon should be bigger than they are. A mentor is somebody who goes, you don't think you can do it, but I do. And you'll probably get one or two of those in your life that's any good if you're lucky. But it's really easy to get stuck underneath a mentor, like for somebody to be like, you're my protege and for the status gap to be there and that's what's in it for them where they're like constantly going look at this little dear thing who I'm developing so if you get stuck under a mentor this is something that I've taught some people I've coached over the years it's never ever failed if you're say your boss is has mentored you but then they don't want you to leave because you know everything is to go to your boss and say look I've never you know if this is true I mean you've got to bring the substance to this I mean if you're working for a narcissist it doesn't matter if it's true if you're working for someone who isn't a narcissist then you know be specific about the the ways in which you've developed underneath them and be substantial and be authentic but ultimately the narrative is I've worked under you and you've developed me to such a point that I've grown out of this role because I've watched you work because I've seen how brilliant you are and I've learned and because you've given me the space to grow. And now I've, I was a bonsai when I came to you. And now I'm the Amazon rainforest because of working for you, I've grown out of this role. And I've never once had any, 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 any manager or, you know, director go, "Mm, I don't see it. I don't think I am that good a mentor ever. They all want that story. They want that story. Yes. Look at this bonsai that came to me. That is now the, they're very rarely will I go, I think you're more of a houseplant. I don't think I've developed you that well, have I? They want that story and they want that story out there. So they start going, get this person a new role because look how I've developed them. I'm a developer of people. I'm an amazing mentor. So as I say, if you're working for a horrible narcissist, then just tell that story and don't worry about it being a bit manipulative. If you're working for somebody you admire, tell them the ways in which they have really genuinely substantially helped you because it does work. Everyone wants to hear that story. Everyone wants to hear that story. And I think people forget that so often when managing up, you sort of, because they have the power, you assume that they have the confidence and the kind of constant feedback loop. Yeah. Everyone needs to hear that. Everyone needs to hear that they're good. Everyone needs to hear that they're good. Everyone wants to hear they're important and they're good at their job. And everyone needs to hear that. Yeah. And also, you know, it's nice to hear specifically why you're good. Again, if you're going to be giving people feedback, this is where you're not doing well. This is where you are doing well. That's very useful and helpful. And people can do a lot with that, I think. I actually also feel that, so we've got a mentorship program with Gwen that has, you know, men matched with women, women matched with men, women matched with women, you know, any uh, kind of split going on and also uh, including in that, you know, trans people matched with straight people, etc. But I feel like there's an interesting thing actually in that kind of cross-gender mentorship sometimes. One of my best mentors was a man and I think that I was so jealous of him in some ways because of his ability to self-include. 
but also that was something that he taught me how to do better by his assumption was always that I could do it. It felt like I kind of borrowed his confidence because he had the same confidence in me. And I feel like I learned that better from him than I have from female mentors where sometimes I felt validated, but we all had the same problem and we needed an external perspective to break out of it to say, yeah, I also have imposter syndrome. What are we going to do about that? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. I get that. What can you, you know, sometimes what you can get from someone who's very like you isn't as good as what you can get from somebody who is completely unlike you and is going to go, well, I don't see it that way. I don't see why you should apologize when you walk in the room. I've never done that. And yeah, you're completely right. Different perspectives can be so helpful, I think, in short. And um, I want to make sure that uh, we distill the different perspectives that we have talked about in this podcast down to something that we can kind of take away as a learning. And something that I really admire about your podcast is that you invite on lots of different voices and they all have time to speak. But I think you're very good at the end at sort of pushing them to tell us one thing we can do so that we're not just listening and feeling better, but so that we're actually taking those small steps that will get us somewhere in the end. So in terms of thinking about inclusive leadership and creating inclusive spaces at work, what's the one thing you think that we can all be doing to start building on that tomorrow? Make sure you're invited to the party. Physically, make yourself central to events, come towards, you've got the option of stillness and you've got the option of movement that is purposeful, that has an ending. Give your voice a lot of energy and then include, include, include. Go on that call specifically, not to go, oh, what am I going to say that's clever? What am I going to say at this meeting that's interesting? Go to include someone else. If you notice someone barely ever speaks up or never speaks up, and they say something interesting to you or you've heard something great about their relationship with their client, say to them, I'm going to, on the Monday morning meeting, I'm going to ask you about that prep something because I really want everyone to know what you're doing. And then it's your job on that call or that meeting to go, oh, guys, Shazi was telling me something amazing that she's doing and I'd love you all to hear about because I think we could roll it out amongst all our clients. Now, Jeff will immediately want to come in there and tell you he's what he's doing with his clients. And you're going to gatekeep because your whole job here is including Shazia. So you're gatekeeping. So you're going to go, oh, Jeff, I want to hear about that in a second. I just want Shazia to finish. If Jeff's very senior and he's going to steamroll, that's fine. Let him do it. But then you're going to go come back and go, oh, Shazia, can you just finish what you were telling us? Because that's your job. Now you're the includer. And here's the thing. Once you become conscious of, of making Shazia included and Jeff feel good and all the other people on the call, are they buying in? Are they listening? You lose your self-consciousness completely because you can't be conscious of them and you. So you're not thinking, well, how, what intelligent thing can I say in this call? You're the includer. And it's the same at a networking event. We're going to be thrust back into so many networking events soon. And you're going to be feeling nervous because we all hate them. And you, and you haven't done it for ages. So you're out of practice. So don't go there to be impressive. Don't go there thinking, what are they going to think of me? Go there with a mission. Your mission, should you choose to accept, is to walk through the door of the networking event fully included. You're the lion in charge of the pride. Very, very purposeful in your movement. Then you're going to look around, think, she doesn't look like she's having a very good time. She looks quite nervous, not talking to anyone yet. And your mission is to go over and make her feel more likable, more interesting, and more listened to. That's your job. Once she feels, she's coming out of her shell and she's starting to feel listened to, go, oh, I hate these things. Do you? Shall we go around? We're meant to be meeting people. It's a networking event. Shall we go around a wing person for each other? Let's go around together. He doesn't look like he's having a very nice time. He looks quite defensive, like he thinks no one likes him. Let's go over and make him feel loved. And you go over. And you make that person feel loved. Once you've done that to three people, you can leave. Your mission, your mission impossible is over. But you probably won't be able to get out because people are going to be holding on to you. Like you're the one that makes them feel good. You're the one that makes them feel interesting. Have big responses to what they say. If they say they're in marketing, 
then you know, have a big response to that. Like, you know, ask them about, ask someone's advice on, you know, tell me what's the one thing about marketing I should know that I, everyone knows in marketing that nobody else knows outside it. What's the secret to it? Or, you know, that's always something I've been fascinated by. I nearly went into that. You know, whatever it is, ask their advice, make them feel like a hero, make them feel like uh, someone's a, an expert. That's your job. And so when you start to do that, you're going to make other people feel like they belong. And who can make people feel like they belong? Only someone central to events. So it solves both the problems at once. So that is your mission, should you choose to accept. You're there to make other people feel like more like they belong. And in doing so, you will always seem more like you belong. I think that's great advice. And I look forward to making someone feel like they belong tomorrow. But in the meantime, thank you so much for this, Deborah. It's been wonderful to listen to all of your advice and experience. Um, we are blessed to have you. Thank you for having me, Lizzie. You've certainly made me feel like I belong today at Edelman. Thank you for having me.